Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 5. Um, hear the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church I, I to, uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we figured we'd start with a light text um, for today. Uh, and because of the intensity of that passage... Um, so many times we hear this and we think, oh man, you know, here we go. But may we, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear God's good will and purposes in our lives. So let me pray for that, okay, before we step into this rich and beautiful and intense passage, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so easy for us to hear this passage and instantly put up our guard, instantly think, oh, Really? what's going to happen with this passage. But I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. May we have ears to hear. May we long for your truth no matter its cost because we know in your truth is life and life abundant. And you love us more than we love ourselves and you want so desperately to lavish that love upon us. May we trust you as we listen. May you guide my words and may we hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine, to kind of start off our time this morning, imagine you're sitting in a church building, and out of nowhere, the building begins to collapse, okay? Well, this past August, you, you may remember there was a group of children who didn't have to imagine this. Um, every Kansas City news station in the area reported a small gathering of children who were gathering for vacation Bible school up in North Kansas City when the church unexpectedly began to collapse. 
It was a pretty terrifying deal, um, and everybody in the city was looking on, asking the question, how could this happen? How come no one saw this coming? Thankfully, everyone escaped with their lives, but for the building, not so lucky. It was condemned with demolition crews coming and finishing what years of erosion had begun. Reporters followed up after the fact and began talking with some of the neighbors who lived around the church building, and they asked the neighbors, hey, is this a shock to you? And they said, no, we are not shocked that this building fell down. You see, this was 113 years, and after many times over installing inappropriately, inappropriate structure, structural installations, the building was doomed to fall apart eventually. Now, you ask the neighbors of this, And they have this reply, but there are plenty of others who looked on and said, I I never saw anything that was dangerously wrong. I mean, sure, there were little things like the roof leaked for the past 17 years, but, but from the outside, it looked great. From the outside, it looked great. And that's what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians. Sure, my life may look really nice from the outside, I can put on a new coat of paint, a strategically located sign. But behind the facade, there's a whole host of issues none of us wants to address. And it's right here we so easily relate with these early Christians. They're living a lie. When they look at themselves, they see the Taj Mahal. But when Paul looks at them, or even their non-Christian neighbors look at them, they see them better than this church sees themselves. Over the past few weeks in 1 Corinthians, we've seen... How Paul has laid the groundwork in revealing how their arrogance, it has no place. And it makes no sense in light of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And this morning, he starts to target a few specific issues that have started to, you know, percolate to the top because of this arrogance. We do a really good job um, priding ourselves in being progressive and being open-minded. But Paul wants us to know that sin will destroy us. And nothing destroys a church like unchecked sin. Paul says, deal with sin or it'll deal with us. Deal with sin or it will deal with us. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're probably thinking, oh, geez. (laughs) You know, I come and hang out with the Christians and, of course, they're going to talk about sin. And you may have some qualms with the concept of sin, but I can almost guarantee every single one of us in here, if we're honest with ourselves, has a code of right and wrong that we try to live by. Maybe, sure, the word sin sounds churchy or old-fashioned. And maybe even you have a moment in your past where you saw a church that was passionate about sin but then fell apart in its own hypocrisy. And it's rubbed you the wrong way. And it rubs Paul the wrong way too. And like a good building inspector, he wants to show us our code violations before it's too late. Yeah, but isn't, isn't Paul kind of blowing this out of proportion? Isn't he getting a little carried away? Don't be fooled by the facade. Sin destroys beneath the surface. Deal with sin or it'll deal with us. And that's why when we walk through our passage, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see that sin should break our hearts because sin is destructive, and so sin must be dealt with. Sin should break our hearts because of what sin is. Sin is destructive, and so sin must be dealt with. So first, sin should break 
our hearts. If you haven't already, would you turn it with me in your Bibles or your devices? Um, I don't know how to say that. Open your devices. Um, And if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 954. Sin should break our hearts. But these early Christians, they were arrogant. And they were arrogantly trying to proclaim that they're open-minded, which is a way of saying, hey, Paul, you're not, right? You're closed-minded. Hey, Paul, welcome to first century Corinth, buddy. I don't know how you guys do things in Jerusalem, but this is Corinth. Get with the times. Sound familiar? It's always been the same argument. And, and whenever we desire to be progressive and to look progressive, Paul wants us to know that at the heart, what's really there is pride. Pride. All right, so look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, non-Christians. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is intense, and it kind of sounds like a Woody Allen film, um, or at least maybe even Woody Allen's life. <laughs> and, and if you're a stepmom... Or stepson, I'm a stepson. It's going to get really weird for a second, okay? Uh, Because this stepson has an intimate relationship with his stepmom, his father's wife. Nice, right? (laughs) And what's so unbelievable about this is that Paul's saying, hey, not even the non-Christians around you, they don't even get why you're doing this stuff. Which is saying a lot because the Romans didn't have a whole lot of sexual taboos, okay? For example, and for, you know, I'm not going to get too graphic. <laughs> you know, like, whoa. Uh, in first century, in the Roman Empire, um, you know, prostitution was an accepted everyday vocation. You, you see that, that men had relations with little boys and it was celebrated. You, you had invitations to orgies. You had exceptions for rape in certain situations. You had examples of uh, gay marriage and tra- transgendered identities. Nothing's new, folks. Nothing's new. And what Paul's trying to highlight here is that even amongst this cultural milieu, what the Corinthian Christians are doing, even the Romans are like, whoa, <laughs> you know? And and to be clear, Paul's not shocked that there's sin in the church. We shouldn't be shocked that there's sin in the church because the church is made up of sinners. We are self-acclaimed, broken people. We gather together and say, hey, we're messed up, you know? We admit that. But what Paul is shocked about is how this little church is responding to sin. They're okay with it. And even more than that, they're arrogantly celebrating it rather than dealing with it. And Paul's saying, hey, your response to sin is actually worse than the sin itself because something's deeply wrong with your heart and your mind that you guys are now celebrating what not even the Romans are willing to celebrate. And we do that more oftentimes than we care to admit, right? We love that Jesus says, love our neighbor. We may even think it's poetic that he says, love your enemies. Ah, that's that's powerful, Jesus. But then we get to specific issues, and we start cutting with our Jeffersonian scissors. Now, for some of you, that that metaphor is lost. Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, uh, he he actually had his own Bible that he cut out all the miracles and certain things because he didn't think that those were necessary or really happened. And, And sometimes we do that with our Bibles. We go and we say, you know, that doesn't really matter anymore. And we start cutting out our own pieces, and we start feeling so smart because we helped Paul and Jesus catch up with the 21st century. 
And ought we not rather to mourn, Paul says. Ought we not rather to mourn? I mean, what comes to your mind when you think of arrogance and Christians? Usually, at least what comes to my mind, are Christians holding picket signs and picket lines with pick and mantra, pick and mantras. Picket mantras, there we go. Or, or you think of the, the bullhorn prophet on the street corner, or maybe even the judgmental deacon with his, you know, righteous finger. But Paul wants us to know that ignoring sin is just as arrogant. Seeing sin erode someone's life and saying nothing is extremely unloving. And he's bringing this to check with the Corinthians. And so we ask ourselves, when we come to sin in our own lives and to those around us, do we just shrug our shoulders or does it break our hearts? Does sin cause us to roll our eyes or does it make us weep? And Paul, he's broken here, and you can almost sense the emotion just leaping off the page when he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Deal with sin or it's going to deal with you. And the first time I heard that verse, I had the deepest pit in my stomach because I've grown up in contexts. I've been in churches where it wasn't healthy, but it was much more abuse than discipline. And maybe some of you have those stories too where you hear this command and it brings you to a toxic environment rather than what Paul is calling us to. And we can think, Paul, isn't that a little extreme? And really, one of the reasons, outside of maybe those painful memories, is because we underestimate just how destructive sin is. Sin is deathly destructive. And one of our biggest pushbacks as modern people is when Paul says, hey, I want you to kick this guy out of your church for his good. What? I want you to kick this guy out of your church for his good. Let's look at this in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is anything but easy. And I'm not going to pretend to explain or act like I know exactly what Paul's talking about here. I don't, so I won't. Brilliant commentators are wrestling through what Paul's talking about here. But one thing is clear. In the first century, the church was in a very different state than it is in the United States. You know, here in the United States, if you got an issue with the church, um, maybe they were a little too nosy or um, they had a different music style that you didn't like, then you can just walk down the street and join into another church, you know, and check in. Where in Corinth in the first century, this is more than likely the only church in that community. So either to be excluded willfully or unwillfully meant that you were going the Christian life alone. And in a place of intense persecution and ostracization already, that was much more of a punishment. In our culture, we might say, yes, autonomous, freedom. (laughs) I'll show them. In the first century, it was like, no, I can't make it on my own. So I want to highlight first When you look at this passage in verse 5, two things are really crystal clear. One, being handed over to Satan ain't a good thing. I think we can agree with that, right? And in that church situation, to be kicked out and to be handed over to Satan was not a good thing. But one thing is good. And I want you to look at this little phrase. This is a key to this whole passage. It's the little phrase, so that. These two words, so that. They're in verse 5. What's Paul's motivation? So that he might be saved so that he might be saved, that his spirit may be saved, in verse 5. And that's a good thing. 
Paul's main motivation isn't hate. It isn't even fear. It's restoring love. That's the primary motivation of that action. Do you see it in our passage? We want to be loving. Who doesn't want to be loving? (laughs) We want to be loving to our friends and our family members. And oftentimes we think the pathway to being loving is to turn a blind eye to sin or to even downplay sin. And Paul instead is saying, no, you're totally missing it. You're totally missing. That's, that's not loving. That's arrogant. But why? Why does he say that? Because sin is deathly destructive. Sin is deathly destructive. Sin at its core is rejecting God who created and sustained us. If God is the creator king and we are his created subjects, whenever we reject God, we're rebelling against his leadership. And think about it in almost every other context of our lives. Why do we rebel against any form of leadership? It's usually because we no longer trust two aspects, or one of the two. We either no longer trust their character or their competence. We either no longer trust that they genuinely love us and they want our best, so their character, or we, tr- we, we no longer trust their competence, that they can no longer carry out. They may have good motivations, but there's no way they're really going to be able to carry that out. And when we find our lives entrenched in sin, not fighting sin because we fight sin and we fail, but wallowing in it, what we're really communicating is, God, I just don't trust you anymore with my life. Either you really don't love me or you really can't get me out of this situation. I'm done fighting. You know what? I'm okay with where I'm at. Thank you very much. And the dangerous reality is, is when we stop trusting God in this life, there's no hope for us trusting him in the next. We're on a trajectory that has an eternal destination. And this is a severe, severe reality. Imagine you're in that church back in northeast Kansas City. And you begin to see the early tremors. You begin to see the cracks in the wall. And as it, it's about to crumble and everybody's running out trying to escape, you see someone asleep in the back. What's your first thought? Is it, you know, I don't want to be rude. <laughs> Seems like they've had a really rough day. And man, they're enjoying that nap. So, you know, as I think about it, who am I to wake them up anyway? And, and you may think, okay, Gabe, that's a little dramatic. No one's going to die from sin. But that's exactly what we all die from. We are terminal because of sin. And if we don't know where death comes in our human experience, or you have an answer to where death comes in your worldview, are you satisfied with that answer? Where does death come from? Why do we die? Well, as Scripture portrays the history of the world, death comes through sin. And death destroys and erodes our only source of life and life eternal, and that's God himself slowly, maybe over time, and you may not even notice it until it's too late and everybody's evacuating. I want to highlight something too because many times when we think of this, we instantly jump to the individual, our own personal lives. We think, okay, sin's going to destroy my life individually, but I want you to know that sin's more complex than even just that. Sin Individual sins will fragment and erode a community. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Let's take a case study that many times we highlight as one of our biggest personal preference wrestlings, and that's the issue of pornography. You're in the privacy of your home, 
It's a personal decision and you're by yourself. Who am I going to hurt? I want to I highlight two things in our context that shows that that's myopic and naive. Sin's more complex than that. If you engage in pornography in the privacy of your home, not around anyone else, first thing it's going to do is it's going to taint your perspective of the opposite sex. It's going to leak out into your relationships. You're going to now see the person of the opposite sex as an object of consumption rather than someone that you self-sacrificially die for. It trains the way you see other people. Secondly, pornography, when you engage in it, whether you think you're being harmless or not, you're supporting an institution that enslaves hundreds of thousands of people in a sex, a sex slave industry, many of those children. And in, sex will destroy every one of us in our wider spheres of influence. And in our globalized world, our spheres of influence have grown and grown. Even the most personal and private of decisions of brokenness have the wide scope of destruction. This isn't just, oh, I can make a harmless personal preface decision. No, and and in verses 6 through 8, Paul is saying, hey, You know, sin's not nice and neat, and you can't keep it in this beautiful little compartmentalized world, but it'll leak out into all of your relationships. And what he does is he turns to the bakery, okay? He actually goes to the baker, and every good baker knows that leaven is fermented dough. You stick it in your dough, and it causes the chemical reaction for the bread to swell, right, or to puff up. And if you want flat bread, not puffed bread, And you can't even allow the smallest pinch of leaven to touch the dough. Because if it touches the dough and it works through the dough, then the whole bread gets nice and fluffy. And it can be delicious if that's what you want. (laughs) But flat bread, if you let the small leaven in, it'll puff up the whole piece. And that's what Paul's saying to this little church in Corinth. You've let this small pinch of leaven actually puff up your whole congregation because you're ignoring this blatant sin in your community rather than dealing with it. And it's showing yourself to be angry or arrogant. So let me ask you, do you see sin as just some harmless personal preferences? Or do you see it as deathly destructive? Do you try to disjoint your decisions from impacting community? You know, no, that, this, is what I, this is my life. I can do what I want. I'm not hurting anybody. Are you being that myopic? Wake up. Sin's more complex. Our lives are more complex. Any sociologist and psychologist will tell you the same. Do you see how your decisions are impacting and your sin is destroying not only you, but everyone in your sphere of influence? Well, Paul has a very clear perspective. And with his apostolic authority, is communicating even with the voice of God. And he says, hey, guess what? Cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse out the old leaven, which is what, what he's basically saying. And he says this in multiple ways throughout our passage, is that sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with or it'll deal with us. Sin will either break our hearts or it'll break us. But the question then becomes, how do we deal with sin? You know, does, does everyone who has just the smallest ounce of sin get kicked out, me included, and we leave this empty building behind? You know, wh- what do we do? Well, let's look at verse number 9 through verses 13 and read that again together. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. 
If he's guilty of sexual or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Such an intense last phrase. And it, and it feels uneasy, doesn't it? It should. It makes me feel uneasy. And to understand what Paul's communicating here, we first need to put it in context in three, inter, three interrelating relationships. Relationship with yourself, relationship with those outside the faith, and those inside the faith. Yourself, outsiders, and insiders, okay? So first, yourself. Start here. Jesus was pretty brilliant in knowing how we act as human beings. I mean, he was the Son of God, so that helped. But what he notices about us is that we love to pick and point at the speck in other people's eyes as a way of diverting and no longer focusing on the telephone pole that's sticking out of our face, right? Well, stop it. Stop it for just a moment. Stop for just a moment thinking of your neighbor, your parent, your child, your coworker, your friend that you wish was here to listen to this message and start thinking about the sin that's killing you today. Start with yourself. We've all got that sin that's lurking around, that's cracking our foundation. Are you aware? This isn't just a passage about how stepsons and stepmoms ought to relate. The Apostle Paul, he's actually saying in our passage, and we saw it in just the section that was just read, is that he's talking about any sexual immorality, any idolatry, any greed, any gossip, any form of substance abuse, any form of cheating each other out, fill in the blank. And whether you need to blow off steam by gossiping, whether you need to build up a security through greed, whether you need to find some connection by sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or glancing at pornography, whatever it is, sin will destroy you and it will destroy those in your sphere of influence, everything and every one. And that's why before we can ever look at the cracks and other people's character, we need to allow and give permission to others to inspect ours. Hey, come look at, my, look at my foundation. Look what's going on in my life. I give you permission to challenge me. Hey, call me out. When the building's about to crash, please, I know I'm going to hate you when you say it. I know I'm going to be so ticked off, but please just tell me anyway because I want to be saved, okay? I don't want to fall into destruction. Will you do that for me? Do you have anybody in your life that you've given that permission to? Anyone in your life? And this is why we believe that church membership is such an important component here at Christ Community. Because in church membership, what you're saying is, I give you permission to actually point out the cracks in my character that I want to ignore. And by God's grace, we'll call each other out before it's too late, before we destroy ourselves. Do you have anybody that you've given permission to? Start here. Start with yourself. Next, let's move to outsiders. As Christians, we engage outsiders by leaking grace. We have our own cracks in our foundation. We know we're broken. And so we leak grace to the outside world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've got complaints, frustrations, questions, doubts, we're really glad you're here. We think we're better because you're here. I hope you know that. Um, and I want to talk to you for just a second. You know, Paul's very clear that we as Christians 
are to deal with your sins differently than other Christians. He's very explicit here. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, I want you to know that we as Christians constantly, we've, we've regularly missed the boat here because we love to point out your sins, but we regularly forget to do the step one, looking at ourselves, looking at the sins that are destroying our own community behind closed doors. It's not that your sin's any different. It's still destructive. It will destroy your life. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. And we can so often come across as arrogant as Christians. We don't always have all the answers, okay? And I know that, and I want you to hear this morning, just straight up, we love you. I love you. And and that's why we want to share the best news we've ever heard in the world, that Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again for our sins, that whoever embraces him has everlasting life now and forever. And we don't think it's just the best news, but the only news that will save you. And we don't want you to miss him. Wherever you're at, Whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, we're going to pursue you. We're going to love you. We're going to fight for you. Because that's what God in Christ has done for us. And when Christians act like Christians, which, by the way, Christians means little Christs, when we act like Christians, we'll do the same. So Christians with outsiders leak grace. And this leaves us with our third and final uh, relationship. And this is where it starts to get a little messy. With insiders, love till it hurts. Love till it hurts. And man, do we need help here. Because Paul says, hey, kick this guy out of the church and don't even eat with him. Well, what about Applebee's? You know, like, what's, what do we do here? Really, Paul? Well, whenever we come to the text, whenever we come to Scripture, and whenever we come to any text in any other aspect of our lives, we naturally do this. But sometimes when we come to Scripture... It's just not a natural reaction. We need to first ask, you know, and we first need to see what this is before we have any hope of understanding what this means. What this is before we have any hope of understanding what this means. This is a specific uh, situation and a specific point in time. In other words, this is a case study that Paul is providing, not a universal command, okay? Case studies, they don't get us off the hook, but we approach them slightly differently. We're looking for principles, not exact imitation in every situation of our lives. And so when we come to this text, we ask, what's Paul's goal? What's Paul's goal, and how can we accomplish that goal today? How can we accomplish that goal today? What's Paul's goal? Remember in verse 5, that little key phrase, so that communicating the overarching purpose is really critical here again in our text, so that he may be saved that this man might be saved and even restored to the community of faith, that he might see his sin for what it is and return to Jesus. It's the work of restoration. That's his goal. So how can we be about the work of restoration today? And it leaves us with this big, hairy question. Is there ever a point in time where someone, the best thing to do is to kick them out of the Christian community? Get ready for it. Sometimes. Sometimes. I know that's really hard. I know that's really weighty. And I've had to have some of those hard conversations. I've worked with some other churches in our KC Metro with folks who are undergoing intense church discipline. But I've also been on the other side where I've seen God work through these intense modes 
to reveal how destructive those sinful decisions are, and then they're restored to those relationships, and they're flourishing once again. Instead of just saying, you know what, it's not that big of a deal, they see how intense of a big deal, how the decisions they were making were going to impact their kids, their coworkers, and their church, and their neighborhood, and they said, I don't want that. But it took an intense, an intense uh, method. And of course, we ask the question, how on earth could that be loving? That's a real question. I get it. But think about discipline and the good of discipline for children. You know, with children, uh, when we were children, we couldn't see very far into the future when we were making our decisions and the repercussions that they would have. So for example, with uh, my daughter Ava, there are times where she wants to go picking at the electrical sockets. Um, she's not thinking about the repercussions of her decision and how that will impact her the rest of her life or even shorten her life. So we discipline with a grave intensity. No, 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 no. You know, don't go near that. And we try our best to protect. And we never grow out of that. We never grow out of that. Sure, we grow up, but our decisions are just that much more weighty. Our choices are that much more dangerous. And so our alarms need to be that much more louder. A 30-second timeout for a man who's about to leave his family probably isn't going to have the same effect it did when he was three years old, right? And here we are. So many of our decisions have huge impact on where our life is headed. And many times we're totally missing the boat And we need people in our life who are going to say, hey, what you're doing, where you're going, it's leading to destruction. Your life's going to come crumbling down. I know you hate me right now for saying this. I know you want to hang up the phone. I know you want to get up from having coffee. I know you're tired of having people tell you this, but I need to tell you because I love you. You're heading towards destruction and you need to wake up and we need people like that in our lives. And maybe next, can we be those people? Can we be those people? We need to be in our Christian relationships with other people in the church. Can we be the people who say the hard things? And so I want to quickly, as we finish out our time this morning, I want to quickly highlight five characteristics of loving confrontation that are modeled by Paul. Five characteristics of loving confrontation as modeled by Paul across the pages of Scripture and also in this text. First, we've got to understand the situation. Understand the situation. Just like no child is the same, no sinner and sin is the same. And so we we come with some diagnostic questions on how we might thoughtfully engage and respond. Okay, is this a brand new believer? Are they trying to figure out the Christian life? Then we're going to probably come at that a little bit differently than someone who should know better. Someone who's been in the game for a long time. Okay, there's a difference as well between someone who's fighting sin and fails but is wrestling with tooth and nail, going tooth and nail compared to someone who's wallowing in sin. How public is the sin? How proximate the circumstances or the, or the, uh, the repercussions? There's no one size fits all. You see, this is a case study and we need to come with wisdom and understanding the situation. And that's why we think the best environment for that here at our church at Christ Community is community groups. As you're doing life together in a smaller setting, you have the opportunity to get to understand each other's situation better and to know the context on when to confront and how to confront. So if you're not in a community group, that would be a huge step to inviting people 
and giving people permission to inspecting your lives. Do you understand the situation? Secondly, check your heart. Check your heart. Why are you confronting someone? Is it because you're self-righteously irritated? Are you grossed out? Are you envious? Or is it because you love them so much you just can't stay quiet anymore? You see where they're going and you're like, I, I can't keep quiet anymore. I have to tell you this because where you're going, it's going to destroy you. And I love you too much to just let you go there by yourself, okay? It's not just about merely confronting, but it's asking the question, why are you confronting? Okay, so understand the situation, check your heart, and then come in humility. Come in humility. And I know, I know, Captain Obvious, right? Um, and we all know this, but we rarely do it. We come with an air of superiority and we come and we think, oh, you know, I can't believe you fell into this again. And Paul, he can be really intense in our passage here. But this is a case study and I want, I want to point you to a time when he's writing another letter to the church in Galatia just very quickly in chapter 6, verse 1. And he gives us a guidance to overarching confrontation of any transgression. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone's caught in any transgression, okay, so this is just a clue. This isn't a case study. This is every situation of transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Be self-aware, lest you too be tempted. You see, loving confrontation, it comes in humility. And then fourthly, Recognize the power of consequences. What do you long for most? Temporary comfort of a loved one or eternal comfort? And this is where our faith is so critical. If today is all we got and what we do doesn't matter, then shoot, let them have temporary comfort right now. But if we're destined for eternity and the decisions we make now are setting us on a trajectory for where we will be in the future, then we're going to confront because this is an eternal destiny at stake. The man in Corinth, he chose to engage and boast in really blatant and flagrant sin. And he'd already made up his decision as to what he wanted most. And he'd left the church behind in his decision-making process. He's already begun to separate himself by saying, you know what? This is great. I'm good with it. Thank you very much. And sin at its core is always separation. Separation from Jesus and separation from his body. And to act like it's not is just impractical and it's unloving. And sometimes, sometimes we allow the natural consequences to take their full effect. Meaning, we allow and we don't step in the way of a Christian pursuing sin so that they see the emptiness of the promises of sin and they feel the full effect of sin and then that might galvanize the promise of Jesus that they've been ignoring. Okay, maybe God did know better here. Maybe I was being arrogant and I just sought after something I wanted and was totally disregarding the church and Jesus Christ. And finally, if nothing works, this is, this is key, if nothing works... If nothing works, then we follow the process that Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 18. Of course, we go one-on-one -on -one and we confront. Then we bring two or more together. and Because there may be a point where we don't understand the situation clearly. Then, if that doesn't work, we bring in the church leaders. And then we even bring it before the whole church body. And if we still receive a stiff arm, then what does Jesus say we do? 
We treat them like outsiders. Review class, <laughs> how do we treat outsiders? How do we treat outsiders? We pursue them. We share Jesus with them. We continue to pray for them. We continue to love them. You see, it's not about shunning. It's not about ostracization. But it's pursuing them again as unbelievers that they might know the truth of Jesus Christ. One commentator is brilliant when he writes that this sort of confrontation cannot mean that the person becomes a pariah to be shunned by the church. It means rather that the person becomes the object of the community's missionary efforts. Understand the situation. Check your heart. Come in humility. Recognize the power of consequences and share Jesus with them. And when we get to this last step, far too often in our culture, instead of choosing to change, we just choose another church. And you can imagine how disastrous it is to try to, ch- to, 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 trans, um, to move a crumbling building from one community to another. It leaves in a lot of excess rubble, doesn't it? And I know this is hard, and I know this is messy, and I still have questions, okay, on how we do this, by case by case. But one thing's very clear. Deal with sin, or it'll deal with us. Deal with sin, or it'll deal with us. And amidst this challenge here at the end, amidst this challenge, we can be utterly crushed unless we hold on to the unshakable hope we have in Jesus Christ. Intermixed in these words of confrontation, we find how Jesus confronted our sin. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb, our sacrifice who went to the cross, who died in our place and took our condemnation upon himself so that when death and sin or death and destruction come our way, they pass over us for eternity. That's who Jesus is. We're desperate for forgiveness. We're desperate that God would see the cracks in our foundation and change us before it's too late. I deserved condemnation. And yet Jesus, the perfect, spotless, righteous one, became my condemnation. He became broken that I might be restored. And then he rose again to create a community for himself of broken and restored sinners. Isn't that what you want? I want that for you. I want that for myself. Yes, we deal with sin, but may we learn to trust that Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all on the cross. Don't be naive to the destructive nature of sin in your life individually and how it destroys the people who love you and surround you, but may you learn to rest on the foundation of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So that, yes, we will, there will be days in your life and in our lives as a community where we might be shaken by the mighty hand of God, might we always stand. Deal with sin, or it'll deal with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It's a heavy word. Sin's never easy to talk about because it confronts us. It means there is something broken in us. And so often, we'd rather just focus on the positive than deal with our brokenness in our heart. God, may you show us our naivete that if we just never deal with the brokenness, it will leak out and it will destroy. May we surrender to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. May may any areas in our lives where we're believing the lies of sin, where we're no longer trusting you, may you bolster 
a newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Guide us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us, his disciples, a meal. A meal in which we remember that Jesus has once and for all dealt with sin. A meal that proclaims the gospel to our senses of taste, touch, and smell through broken bread and common poor juice we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Before you come, uh, I just want to talk you through how we do this together if you're new. Um, We ask that only those who have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would partake. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, once again, we're glad you're here, but use this time to pray that Jesus would continue to reveal himself to you, to show the truth of who he is and reveal the cracks in your character. And then, if you do come, you'll come down one of the two aisles, circle around to the back to one of our two communion stations. You'll get in groups of four to six, and you'll partake together. But before you do that, we're going to do something a little unique. We do it every once in a while. We're going to take a period of reflection. We're going to start with ourselves this morning. We're going to allow the cross to do its work and highlighting the cracks in our own character. And they're going to be up on the screen, and I want you to pick one of the two questions and to pray through them, that God would examine your heart. He would inspect your soul, and he would do his work even now. And then I'm going to come back up and read the words of promise that have been handed down to us, and we'll partake. Let's take a couple minutes. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.